Alright, so we're continuing on in Acts. And I don't know if we're ever going to get out of chapter 8, but we're going to give it our best shot tonight. We've been here for a few weeks. Um, And as we know, uh, the church kind of had a big explosive start. And they just went about right where they were in Jerusalem, setting out to be the church, which they saw as being the temple, what the temple was originally supposed to be. So they set out to act like the temple, to, to function like the temple, to be the place where people could get connected to God, to care for the poor, um, to kind of have this social movement to do what's right, which is what the temple was originally intended to do in the Old Testament. And of course, this bothered those who drew their power from the existing temple. So they were threatened by this, and they pushed back. They arrest Peter. They threaten him, say no more preaching. Um, they let him go. He keeps preaching. They, uh, they bring him back in. This time they beat him um, and let him go again, uh, and he goes right back to preaching. And, and uh, finally things get bloody, and they, uh, they stone Stephen. They arrest Stephen. He gives his, kind of his case for what he had been preaching, and they stone him. And this causes kind of widespread persecution of the church in Jerusalem. They have to run. And so they kind of scatter all over the place, but everywhere they went, they went preaching. So this actually served as kind of a, uh, what we talked about the week we, we taught on that, almost like a planting of seed, a scattering of seed. It widened the field that they were planting in. And one guy that uh, we believe was a, a Jew who had grown up uh, outside of Jerusalem, uh, what we call a, a, a Jew of the diaspora, one who had been kind of scattered at some point, so he probably went to a synagogue or something. He has a Greek name, not a Hebrew name, and so, uh, and he was chosen to kind of keep things fair for the for the widows who weren't from Jerusalem. Uh, so most likely, uh, he was chosen to represent them. Um, he was probably a Jew who was from outside Jerusalem, so he didn't have some of the prejudices that the Jerusalem Jews had, so he goes up into Samaria to preach, which is kind of the place Jews didn't go. They didn't like the Samaritans, and, uh, and he didn't really um, have those, uh, that resistance, and so he goes up into Samaria preaching and finds them ready to receive the gospel. They, both, they hear his message, they accept it, they get baptized, and this was such a shock to the apostles who were back in Jerusalem that Peter and John... Um, pack up and head up into Samaria. This is the first time they've left Jerusalem since the Passover uh, when Jesus was crucified. And so this is the first time they leave town. And they pack up to go up and see if this thing happening in Samaria is kind of real. And they get there and they pray for the people and the Holy Spirit falls on them, much the way it did on the original apostles uh, at Pentecost. And so they find it... um, that there's nothing they can do. The Holy Spirit has moved into Samaria and they just jump on board. And our last verse from last week says that they headed back to Jerusalem just hitting village by village in Samaria on their way back down. And so that's where we pick up tonight with Philip. And Philip, it seems, just kind of left... Let me find my spot here. Just kind of left uh, uh, Peter and John to do the work. So this says... And when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go to the south along the road which will go down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So 
Philip, apparently, he gets the ball rolling in Samaria. He gets the apostles up there to continue the work, and he scoots. He heads south. And this is what he finds when he gets there. He arose and went, behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, I know exactly what you're thinking, because I thought the exact same thing when I read this. You could just, we could all say it together, maybe. What in the world is an Ethiopian doing worshiping in Jerusalem? And where did he get a scroll from Isaiah? Right? We were all thinking that. No, that's the kind of stuff that drives me crazy. Why was there an Ethiopian in Jerusalem worshiping and where did he get a scroll of Isaiah? They didn't have Amazon back then. They didn't even have the printing press. Like these scrolls were valuable and it's very strange that an Ethiopian's traveling with one. And so I dove into some research this week to find out why there's an Ethiopian worshiping in Jerusalem carrying a scroll of Isaiah. And here's what I found. There's a lot of speculation about uh, this Ethiopian, and I'm going to go ahead and heap some more on top. Um, but uh, most people assume he was a Gentile. That's kind of the standard in most of the commentaries. They assume he was a Gentile, which I don't think really holds up because the Bible makes a huge deal when, the first, when Cornelius gets uh, saved because he's the first Gentile to get saved. And there's a bunch of preface. Luke gives us a bunch of preface up to that. It... it it sets off almost a church council um, when Peter gets back from Cornelius's because they're like, what are you doing witnessing to Gentiles? And so it sets off this kind of whole movement. We're going to get into that in a couple of chapters, but it seems weird that Luke would spend such a, so much time setting up this, the conversion of the Gentiles if one's already been saved back here. So that didn't feel right to me. Um, and so the next, and those, there's a lot of other people who don't think this was a Gentile, so they assume it was a proselyte. Somebody who had been born in Ethiopia, converted to Judaism, um, and became a kind of a converted Jew, which also doesn't really hold water because um, he's a eunuch. And the Old Testament scripture, which was upheld, Second Temple, these were some of the rules that were upheld, uh, Second Temple, um, the historians tell us, was that a man couldn't convert into Judaism if his genitals had been crushed or altered or damaged. I have no idea why or how you find out, but it was one of the funny rules. that. Uh, so it would have been very, unless he somehow had converted before he became a eunuch and then was made a eunuch, and that's pretty unlikely. So it doesn't seem like he would be a converted Jew. I don't believe that would have been allowed um, at the temple at the time. And so... I dug deeper, and I think he was an Ethiopian Jew. There's a group of Ethiopian Jews called the uh, Beta Israel. And this is a community of, uh, of Jews that have lived in uh, Ethiopia for almost 3,000 years, we think. I mean, they're, they're actually really terrible at keeping their own history. There's not a lot of real solid congruent history about them. But here's what we do know. Um, of all the accounts uh, of... Their lineage, the most widely accepted, is that they were part of a community of Jews that fled Israel when the split between the northern ten tribes and the southern ten tribes happened. When Rehoboam came out and he told the ten northern tribes, I'm going to work you even harder than my dad did, and he was harsh with them, they split the kingdom and separated. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And in splitting the kingdom... um, there's a group of Jews who they were from the south but didn't like Rehoboam. They didn't like 
that he was going to work them hard. They didn't think they would be accepted up north. And the way their legend goes, the Beit Yisrael legend goes, was they had been impacted by the Queen of Sheba when she had come and visited Solomon. They had, in essence, fallen in love with her. Um, when she went home, when they fled Israel, they followed her back to Ethiopia. Um, Sheba would have been in northern Ethiopia at the time. And so... Um, their most widely accepted legend of origin, and they, they do have some weird ones. Some say they were the descendants of Moses's Egyptian or Ethiopian wife, like way back. But there's very little evidence of that. Most likely, they fled uh, at the time of the schism back to Ethiopia, and um, and settled under the Queen of Sheba. They most likely. Uh, swore fealty to the Queen of Sheba, but continued to be Jews, continued to practice Judaism. And as things moved on, uh, they apparently practiced uh, pretty solid, verifiable Jewish worship, um, which means they had uh, access to the scrolls of the Old Testament because they followed uh, Levitical concepts back in Ethiopia. So then they've got some legends as to where they got their scrolls. Some say that Solomon gifted them to Sheba, like he gave her a copy of the scrolls when she was in Jerusalem. Um, some say that these these were actually the the only way they would have had real interaction with the Queen of Sheba was if they were like palace workers um, and that they would have had access to those things being in kind of upper level positions. So some say they actually stole a copy of the scrolls when they left. But somehow this funny little Jewish community in Ethiopia had a copy of the scrolls. And we found out in the 20th century that they had somehow continued to get updated versions of the scrolls because they had a full Old Testament, including a lot of the uh, Second Temple editions um, uh, in Ethiopia. And so in 1975, uh, Israel declared this group of Jews in Ethiopia to be legitimate, valid Jews. Uh, and which gave them the privilege of, of immigration if they chose it. And 85% of the people in Beit Israel moved into the promised land. Um, and this, there was two reasons. One was they had held on for 3,000 years. They had been in, um, almost 3,000 years they'd been in Ethiopia. And, they, and for 3,000 years, through their narrative, had hung on to the concept that they belonged in the promised land. It kind of shows just how strong this understanding is in the Jewish narrative. And so even though they, like, they can trace their lineage back almost 3,000 years in Ethiopia, they considered themselves to be promised land Jews and always dreamed of going home. And, and so uh, in 1975, 85% of them moved back uh, because they say it's because they want to get back to the promised land. If you know your Ethiopian history, which I know we all do, we know that in 1974, a civil war broke out in Ethiopia that was very bloody, and it also happened at a time of famine. And so in the 70s and 80s, Ethiopia was no place to be. And so that probably precipitated some of them going back to Israel as well. But that's why we have, most likely, this Ethiopian eunuch was a member of Beit Israel. He was a member of this Israeli, uh, this Jewish community from Ethiopia, and... Uh, and was traveling back to Jerusalem to worship, which that also gives us, and this is a little more speculation, but it's, it's kind of fun. It gives us a little bit of a timeline. Because if somebody from Ethiopia was traveling back to Jerusalem um, to worship, it was most likely one of the pilgrimage festivals. There's three of these a year, and it would have made sense that they were traveling to um, 
uh, Jerusalem for a festival and then heading back to Ethiopia. This was very common. And that means uh, we know the Passover would have been mid to late or mid to early April um, uh, that year, uh, or no, mid to late April. And then um, Pentecost, 50 days later, is in June. And then uh, Sukkot, which is the next um, pilgrimage festival, the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents, or what's basically the national camping trip. Everybody goes out and lives in tents for a week, um, which would be a blast. We need one of those. Um, uh, Would have been in October. So this kind of gives us a fun little timeline. So far, everything we've talked about in the book of Acts probably happened within about six months of Jesus' crucifixion. So that means that last week when we talked about uh, Philip going up into Samaria, Jesus was teaching in Samaria, teaching tons of parables and stuff as he was traveling through Samaria. And that was probably only about six months before Philip shows up and is able to say, you know that guy that, that taught the masses here, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. And, and so it would have been very easy to imagine how much Jesus stirred them on his passing. And then Philip went up and basically harvested all that seed that had been planted. So that's our Ethiopian. That's most likely who he is and where he is, um, which gets us into tonight's story. And here's what I wanted to do tonight, because next week we really transition. Next week we get into Paul, and really kind of the whole book turns when we get into Paul. A lot of things happen, and, and, uh, and we really see kind of the movement of the gospel expand once Paul gets involved. So we're kind of at a transition point in the narrative itself. But I thought it would be fun with this last little story. Um, because I really couldn't go farther without getting into Paul. So I just thought we'd take this story, and I pulled a, a slide from our very first week in Acts, whatever that was, three or four years ago that we started this book. And, um, and this is the exact s- slide off of that very first week. And we talked about some of the tension in this book between who does the work, because the book of Acts kind of gives us a picture of a lot of human effort. There's people doing a lot of things. They're going places. Peter gets arrested, threatened, beaten, and he still gets up in the morning, gets dressed, and heads back out to preach some more. I mean, that's a lot of human determination, human effort. It is also a book of the movement and activity of the Holy Spirit. Constantly moving, pushing people, telling people to do things, doing miracles, setting people free from prison, healing people, doing signs and wonders, all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's a... It's kind of a blending and a cooperation of those two. And it's hard to tell at times what is the human effort and what is the God effort. And this story right here is just kind of a fun one just to kind of pull almost out of the, out of the narrative for a second, out of the context for just a minute, and just let it stand by itself for a second. I've been kind of working hard to hold us in the narrative. I don't know if you've noticed when we do our recap, I'm trying to kind of keep the story together. We have a tendency sometimes to pull passages just kind of out of context and look at them all by themselves and that can be really dangerous if you lose how they fit into the real narrative that they're given to us in. And so, but this one kind of stands alone. It's just kind of a good fun story that we can just kind of pick apart for a minute. So I think that's what we're going to do this week and just kind of dig into this. And I thought it would be fun to look at uh, the parts of the story that the Holy Spirit does and the parts that Philip does and just kind of isolate the two and look at who's doing what work here and how this plays out in the big story. So let's, let's start with uh, the parts that the Holy Spirit does. Send an angel. And this is kind of, this, this is a big one. <laughs> now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. 
And pretty much any time an angel shows up in our story, I'm going to do this thing I'm getting ready to do. Okay? So here's my advice when you read about an angel. Anytime you read about an angel in the scripture anywhere, just see it, sigh a big sigh of relief, just like a And let some of the weight of being a Christian fall off your shoulders for a second. Because here's what we tend to do. We tend to put like the responsibility of hearing from God on ourselves. Like if I was just tuned in more, or if I just was more faithful with my quiet time, or if I just like prayed harder, if I was a better person, I'd be able to hear what God is saying to me better. And it's important to remember that he has angels. If he wants your attention, he can get it. He can, all the ways, he, he uses a talking donkey. He uses a, a bush that burns but doesn't burn up. He sends angels. He has the Holy Spirit. God has ways of breaking through to us. If, if, if our heart is to serve him and follow him and do our best, and you're not hearing him give you anything in particular today, just keep doing what he told you to do last. Or go to the Bible and find something to do. There's plenty to do. And if he, if you get on a bad track and he's like, you know, hey, I mean, there was the, the, uh, the talking donkey just kept, the, there was an angel standing in the road that the guy couldn't see and the donkey would stop. And the guy's like, hey, come on, donkey. And he was beating a donkey. Like, if God wants you to stop something and, you're, and your heart is set on serving him, he'll talk to you. And, and so anytime you see him send an angel to somebody, just go, okay, he hasn't sent me an angel yet, so I guess I'm not too far off track. I guess I'm doing okay. Like, just let some of the, that weight of having to serve him perfectly just kind of come off your shoulders because he can direct us. He can. And, that, and, and he's, he's a big God, and he knows how to talk to his children. And so, anytime I bump into an angel, I do that. It just reminds me that God can speak and that he can get my attention and he can send me places if he wants and that if he hasn't, I'm probably right where he wants me and I can just keep serving him faithfully where I am until he tells me to go somewhere else. Okay. So the Holy Spirit sends an angel. Where are we at? Oh, and then he talks to Philip more directly. Tells him uh, to approach the eunuch. It goes like this. Then the Spirit said to Philip, and why, I don't know if, if Philip is like me and he's just dense and you've got to get his attention, like you've got to snap through the ADD first, and then you can talk to him. Like, so I, like I, I see the angel as like my life going, hey! and then I'm, what? Okay, now I've got you and we can actually talk. Like that's what it feels like. I don't know why he sent an angel when he could have just talked to him, but the angel seems to have got his attention, and once he had his attention, the Holy Spirit could talk to him. So the Spirit talks to him directly and says, go near and overtake that chariot. So God has a whole arsenal of ways he can talk to us. Uh, Next, the Holy Spirit provides and leads the Ethiopian to the word. And this is kind of central. And here's the thing. You could argue that this is coincidence, that the Ethiopian just had a literary interest in the scripture and he just happened to fumble upon the scroll of Isaiah and just happened to wind up in chapter 53 that depicts the suffering servant, which is kind of the one big chapter Israel missed. Um, which is why they didn't recognize Christ coming because they weren't looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for a warrior. And so you could call it coincidence that this Ethiopian happens to have Isaiah and it happens to have it opened up to, to, uh, to chapter 53 when Philip comes strolling up, but I don't like coincidence. Um, this feels uh, very divine to me. It feels like 
the Holy Spirit has set up this moment. So the Holy Spirit, when he's up getting Philip's attention, he's, he has already been at work in this Ethiopian. This Ethiopian has been carrying this scroll for a while. Like he's been setting this up and Philip just kind of falls into something that the Holy Spirit had already been doing. Usually when the Holy Spirit sends us somewhere, it's not so we can, so we can take God into this new place. It's so we can go in and identify and kind of testify to what God was already doing there. And so we're, a lot of times we're just there to go, to go, oh yeah, that thing you've been doing, that's God. Um, and we're just really almost there to point out what God was doing before we got there. God's been working in this Ethiopian for a while. I would go so far as to say that the Holy Spirit was actively drawing the Ethiopian. Jesus said it this way um, in John. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If this Ethiopian is seeking, if he's actively seeking God, then that's, that's the Holy Spirit drawing him. The Holy Spirit's already pulling on the Ethiopian. And finally, just to top it off, the, the Holy Spirit does this weird miracle at the end that I don't even fully understand, but it says, Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So, I'm assuming Philip's got the Ethiopian and he pronounces the baptism, he dunks him, they come up and he's gone. Philip's gone. And we don't know, and the Ethiopian looks around, can't see him. And I, I would have to assume you would either at that moment assume you're crazy or you've had too much tequila or, or you assume it's a miracle and you, and you rejoice, which is what the Ethiopian does. It says he walked away rejoicing. He obviously didn't think he was crazy. He saw this for what it was, which was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And that would be a great way to solidify your conversion, right? To just you, You're converted, you get baptized, and you immediately see signs and wonders. That would be absolutely amazing. So there's absolutely no doubt that the Holy Spirit's working in this story. Really, you could script this whole thing as the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, everything from, from sending Philip in the first place to making sure the Ethiopian has the right scripture open to the right spot, just waiting for someone to show up and teach him. He's, he's primed. I mean, you can't, you can't have... A, I, I witnessed to a guy once, um, and I didn't even really do anything. I was working. I had some Christian music playing. And the guy walks in and goes, um, uh, is this Christian music? I said, yeah. He said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, are you? He said, no, man, I'd love to be, but I'm not. I was like, well, let me help you with that. I was, and, and, I, and we prayed together, and I thought, man, this is awesome. I'm like an evangelist. I could do, just knock him out of the park all day long. And, but somebody, like, there's absolutely no way I could take credit for that. The Holy Spirit had obviously been hammering away at this guy's heart. And, just pre- and I was just happened to be there, you know, to pick the apple off the tree that somebody had planted somebody had fertilized somebody had done all the work and I just got to bring in the harvest which was awesome but you've got a guy when at the second all Philip says is what are you reading you get you understand what you're reading there and he's like no I need someone to teach me like how awesome is that like who's not dreaming about that moment no I just need someone to teach me and so he gets up and talks to him the guy's like hey there's some water can I get in there and get baptized like this guy was primed and ready. The Holy Spirit's been working on this guy for a while now. And then the Holy Spirit does a miracle. So you could script this as just, this is a, this whole thing from beginning to end is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit doing an amazing work. 
And then there's Philip. What's his role in this conversion? First, he obeyed. Like, the, Holy, the, the, the angel of the Lord told him to go south, and Philip doesn't seem to hesitate. He just, right on, here we go, head south, I'm gone. Just go south. This is a whole different story if Philip doesn't obey. If Philip's like, you know, I don't want to, I've got like a lunch appointment, and then I've got to pick the kids up, and I just don't have time to go south right now. Like if Philip doesn't obey here, this story plays out completely different. Even though the Holy Spirit's done all this prep work, all this stuff, it still needs Philip's obedience. It needs Philip to respond to this prompting. Second thing is, he strikes up a conversation. This is hospitality. Philip doesn't just get down and say, oh, do you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior? Like, he doesn't just walk right up and start witnessing. He's like, what are you reading? Man, Isaiah, that's heavy stuff. You understand what you're reading? That's pretty thick. You know, he just, he just, he starts a friendly conversation with the guy, just walks up and starts talking. I think talking, I'm actually going to read the passage real quick. Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? I think talking is probably the most effective ministry tool we have. Just talking to people, just being a conversationalist. Sometimes we, we hammer away at people and we don't even know where they're at yet. When we just start talking, just be hospitable. Just get to know people. A lot of times we, you walk away knowing you know, ten things you can pray for that person and you didn't even ask. It, just, it comes out in the story. It's just being nice. That's just being nice to people, which is super important. So the next thing is Philip contextualizes the word is what we kind of call that. It says, I think I've got the passage here. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. So he started exactly where the Ethiopian was. He didn't say, man, forget Isaiah. Isaiah's heavy. I've got this track that's got ten verses that are all pulled out of context, but when you sit them out right next to each other, it makes a perfect case for Jesus. Like, he doesn't do that. He, he says, wherever you're at, you know, let's start right there and we'll build and we'll talk. And what if the Ethiopian's not in Isaiah? What if he's into football or what if he's you know into cars or what if he's you know into the stock market I think Philip still would have had to start right where he's at just start a conversation with a guy start building a faith discussion right where he's at or what if he's having trouble in his marriage or trouble with his kids or trouble in his job you start there it says that Philip starting right where the Ethiopian was he preached Jesus to him which brings up our next one, which is he preached Jesus. This sounds like the same thing, but it's actually way deeper. <laughs> because it's, it's important to remember that the entire scripture is a narrative arc about Jesus. Like sometimes we forget that this is, this is telling a big grand story that is ultimately about Jesus. Sometimes when we forget that, we get hung up in a passage or a, part that we don't like and it's ugly and sometimes it doesn't even make God look that good and we don't get it and we get frustrated and we want to walk away from the whole thing because we we zoomed in on this one little thing that really is just a piece of this much bigger narrative arc about Jesus and and Philip could have messed up here and gone oh Isaiah do you realize the the historical context of this book you know he got really caught up like some crazy historical you know buff preachers do those guys, and, and miss the essence of this thing was Jesus. And so he manages 
wherever he was to pull Jesus out of this, to preach Jesus in this thing, which is why I love, this is one of the reasons I, we do communion every single night and we do it at the end, is because no matter what we talk about, no matter how far I take us down historical bunny trails or, or psychological or philosophical or, or if we get into the arts or whatever, at the end of the night we've got to come back to the table and say, Jesus broken body and poured out blood. That's what it's all about. And that's going to be the center of everything we talk about. No matter where we go in these long rambling talks, we're going to wind up at the table again at the end. And we have to because it's all about Jesus. And Philip takes it there. And there's some study that would have had to have happened here. Like Philip would have had to have been grounded to know how to get from point A to point B. So, and that's, that's Philip. I don't think the Holy Spirit was necessarily dictating every word out of Philip's mouth. I think Philip was handy with the scripture and he had done his study and he knew how to get, he definitely, definitely knew how to get from Isaiah 53 to Jesus. And so there's some more, I guess, Philip in that. And finally, Philip performs the sacrament. It says he baptized the Ethiopian. He didn't say, you know, dude, as long as you believe, you know, as long as you you know, if you, since you believe in your heart, don't ruin the rest of your trip by jumping in a mud puddle, you know, and it's wet all the way home. Like, that's terrible. Like, as long as you believe, it doesn't matter. Like, it's, it's not a big deal. He doesn't do that. Because the sacraments are important. The sacraments are like our response. It's like our, it's, it's the part we can do. It's us saying, okay, this, this amazing thing that we can take, like, very little part in. It's almost all God has happened. And our response is we respond in sacrament, like we respond by saying, you know, this is the body and blood of Christ. Do this in remembrance. Remember the body and blood of Christ. That's what we can do. And Philip knew that was important. The forms are important. The process is still important. It's, it's not what saves us. It's not, but somehow it is. Somehow it's part of the process. And Philip doesn't neglect that. So even, in the, even on this weird puddle on the side of the road, you know, experience, he follows through and he sticks with the forms. He does the, he, does, he, st- he stays in the process and baptizes the Ethiopian. So we've got this strange cooperation. And really, if you took the Holy Spirit part out, it still looks like he could have pulled it off. And if you take the Philip part out, it still looks like the Holy Spirit did everything. That's the tension. It's, when, it's, when it's God, it's really hard to tell what's us and what's Him. And I can promise you, if He's not there, nothing happens. And if you don't show up, nothing happens. So how do we respond to this? What do we do with this? Here's my hope. Is that when we hit a passage like this, our absolute hearts cry would be to just say, Holy Spirit, come and fill us up. Just come and, and join us. Invite him into our world and, and jump into his world. That would be my hope because Christianity is more than a behavior system. It's more than an ethic. It's more than a moral. It's, it's much deeper than that. And it's also more than a belief system. It's not just, if you can't just mentally ascend to, ascend to, to this list of things and everything will be fine. It transcends both of those. It's a relationship. It's a true cooperation between us and the Holy Spirit. 
It's deep. Don't go it alone. Don't try to go it alone. The Holy Spirit's been offered to us as our ever-present comforter. And I actually, last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit, I talked about the need to constantly be refilled. And I I had a, a note in my notes to say this, but I just kind of missed it. But one of the tensions of of walking with God is that we're always completely full of the Holy Spirit and need to be refilled all at the same time. Like we have the fullness of the Spirit when we have Christ and we have everything the Spirit has to offer and yet we still constantly need to be refilled. It's a tension. We're always full and needing filled both. And here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is a touchy subject because there's a lot of people who think when the Spirit comes it looks like this. A lot of people, that scares them and so they've always resisted that. And here's the thing, this doesn't have to be weird. Like the Holy Spirit doesn't, like if you look at this story, if you look at the story tonight and, and you don't pick it apart the way we do, here's what it sounds like. Philip went and witnessed to a guy and that guy became a believer. That's the story. When you, when you take the overview, it's... Uh, and, I, and I've known people do this. Yeah, someone called me, they were hurting, I prayed for them, they, and they were healed. And it, it doesn't have to be weird. Like, we should, we should casually expect the miraculous. Like, it should just be part of what we do. We should just assume that God is active in this and wants to do amazing things. When we pray for people, we should assume God wants to do amazing things. And there's nothing in this story that couldn't have happened at Open Table Community Church on any Sunday night. Somebody walks in and and I feel this prompting, I need to go talk to that person. And we go talk to that person and, and we start to share and we start to be hospitable and they share some of their heart and then they... Join the people of God. And it's, and it's an awesome story. And that's how it works. And what we don't realize is the Holy Spirit is working in that and constantly moving in that. And we are working in that and constantly moving in that. And we can't say, you know, on one hand we can't say, I'll take the Holy Spirit. I just don't want anything weird. I just don't want any of that crazy stuff. If the Holy Spirit wants to get weird, you've got to get weird. But we also can't say it's not the Holy Spirit if it's not weird. Like it's not the Holy Spirit if, you know, if people don't fall down. And if the Holy Spirit wants to knock you down, I promise it's going to be for your good. It's going to be, he's not just going to knock you down because he's messing with gravity. It's, there's going to be a reason. But you can't, you can't go into the thing, and that's the, that's the scary thing is we've, we've kind of made it such a dichotomy that people are either I want the Holy Spirit and all the crazy weird stuff that comes with it. And other people are like, I don't even want to talk about the Holy Spirit because of all that crazy weird stuff. We can't do that. We have to just say, Holy Spirit, we need you absolutely overflowing in our lives so that we can do your work, so we can go out in the world and do your work. And so we can love each other, we can be sensitive to each other, and so we, so we know what's happening. And I think to be most effective, that's, that's what we have to do. Have I scared anybody off yet? If this is just an ethic, if this, if this is just 
a good way a good way of living. If this is just the the most moral path. Then the cross was overkill. Because there's a lot of good moral teachers, and most of them did not have to go to the cross and be and suffer to get their message out. There's a lot of good ethical philosophers who come up with really good logical reasons we should be good people. And their message is great. If this is about ethics and this is about morality, then the cross was absolutely overkill. But if it was about more than that, if it was about the Holy Spirit coming and and living with us and living in us and, and us going out into the world to do good, not just like, what can I do? I'm just one person. Like, what can I do out in the world? What can my you know, little bit of love that I show people do any, do any good? But when it's God in us, like using us as a vehicle to get his love out into the world and to spread his nature, which is love, to people, then you understand why Jesus would say, okay, not my will, but yours be done. Because that is worth it. That's big. And so that's why we go to the table and we remember a broken body and poured out blood.